Hi, everybody. It is May 30th, 2016. It is Memorial Day, a very solemn holiday in the United States. And we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Hello, everybody. Burns, and we are the co-hosts of Future Theater on PSN Radio and the Dark Matter Digital Network. And joining us tonight is our producer, Angel Espino, the Jackal. Say hello, Jackal. Hello, Jackal. And Chris Brown is with us tonight. Say hello, Chris, with his new headset or his hello, new old Chris headset. with my new headset. There you See go. Mm-hmm. So, and, yeah. And tonight we're going to be talking about the Montauk Boys. We, with another Chris. We have, we're going to have two Chris's tonight. It's going to get two kind Chris's. of confusing. Yeah, Chris one and Chris two, but 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 your accents are entirely different. So I think we'll we'll be able to tell the difference because uh, Chris Garitano is he's an East Coast person, I think. I'm not positive. Well, he's from Long Island. Okay, okay. Well, then there's your accent. There it is. Yeah, we heard it in the movie. Yeah. Well, we yeah uh, we we've done our homework now. If folks don't already know, uh, if you're a UFO. Nut, you already know that Chris has done the movie that if you haven't seen it, you really need to. And you, most UFO buffs have seen this movie, I guarantee. It's what do you guys think of it? The Montauk Chronicles. Well, I, I saw it, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks ago. And uh, what really got me is the fact that, you know, not only is it covering a topic which is a little bit iffy to really follow because of everything that happened. But it was it's structured in a sense that actually makes sense of the events. Plus, it had a little bit of a Hollywood effect to it, where it was a little bit of dramatization to everything that was going on in Montauk. And mm-hmm. I mean, he did a really fantastic job of keeping not only your your interest in what's going on in the film, but to actually make it a, a good narrative story with everybody that was involved. I mean, he did a really excellent job yeah. editing yeah. the thing together. Yeah, I've not seen it, so he I spent a long know. time working on this thing too. By the way, this is a project that took him. He scrapped it at one point and restarted, you know, editing. It was, it was a pretty long project. So. Well, now uh, before he comes on, and I should have asked you this privately before we started the show, but just tell me this: I have heard through the grapevine that Chris, in between the the new project he's working on, which is Bigfoot, and this movie, which was the Montauk Project, I understand that he had a middle project that he had gotten pretty far along with and didn't complete. Um, do you know anything about that, or is that something we can talk about? I, I, I suggest just ask the man. Myself. Yeah, okay. I would ask just, you know, ask him. Okay. He, he would in, know. Case you, in case you would say, oh, no, that's a big story. And, yes, by the way, the chat, uh, folks, if you want to get to the chat, you go to psn. PSN.com? No, no, no. No, no, no. PSN-radio.com. Okay, go there, yeah. and you will see a hover. You'll you'll find a hover for chat, and you will find no, the chat. No, 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 very easily. Skype chat. Even oh, easier. Sh- even easier. Hmm? On the very top of the banner is, right to the right, it says, it says click for chat. You click on there, it's going to take you right to the chat room, and there there's a link that says join the uh, Skype chat. Click that, boom, you're in there. Yeah, and there's lots of people Boom. in there now. You're in. Boom. You know, it's, it doesn't feel like a party in the chat room, and yet it's really a good-sized 
party of people here. Um, for us, it's actually a lot of people. And um, the big news is this is our 300th, 300 show. <laughs> 300 episodes, baby. I know. And, wow, I, I feel like we're just as completely amateur as when we started. Pretty much, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, it's about the size of it. No, yeah, I mean, yeah. What have Nailed we it. Nailed it. What have we learned? What have we learned? Well, this is uh, Chris, Chris Garitano's first time on the show, so that's cool. But we've had a lot of people on a few times, more than once, some people on a lot of times. You can go back through all 300 shows for the time being. And I've been on over 100 episodes now, of, you know, of, of the a show. Fu- and of Future Theater? Yeah, yeah. As how do you know show. How do you know it's over 100? Well, it has to be over 100 at this point. I mean, I, I would imagine it'd have to be, yeah. yeah. To go back. You, actually, yeah. yeah, all of... And all Nancy and Bill, by the way, you two do not take any days off. I have to say, you guys are a true diesel engine when it comes to your yep. radio shows. You guys oh. really are, are in there for every every... Every Monday, you're there, so and that's not the case with a lot of them. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that tonight because I like the round table on Sundays. You're trying to say that, Chris? Yeah. Well, it's a little bit different, but uh, (laughs) we love our round table. Well, the thing I was thinking about it tonight when I was getting ready for the show because I dread becoming public once a week. As it gets closer and closer, I dread it more and more and more. And 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 big shout outs to Danny who set up tonight's interview. Big deal. yeah, and Danny wanted to um, do a little sound check, and I'm thinking, I, Christopher is very professional, and I think we're going to be fine. Yep. yep because yep. I, because I'm I am shy at the end of the day. I don't really talk to people that much during the week, and so, but there's a part of me who wants to be on the radio every single day. The other the other weird. Um, idea I have that would make it easier would be to be on the radio all the time like I used to be. So there's a I'm torn. I'm torn. I don't think Bill is torn. What do, what do you think? I'm not torn. You're not torn. Not torn. This is yeah. 118th episode that I've been on. No tearing. 118th. You see that? Yeah. 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 And again, dependable. Dependable. You can say what you want about Angel Espino. You can say oh okay anything you want. But Calm I would down, say, Bill. We'll get excited. <laughs> but I'm telling you, dependability, and that is critical. You got to show up. That's half the half the half. Are you kidding? That's ninety five percent. Ninety five percent of success. Read the Bible. That's the whole point of the Bible. Really? Showing up. What? Where in the Bible? The whole first Everything. five books. Yeah. yeah. That's the whole point. I God showed up. If, if God would have never showed up, we wouldn't have been here. Like God, yeah, hey, the whole point is showing up. He showed up. He said, "Let there be light." He Woody spoke. Allen. Woody Allen. You know. Well, now, Right before ninety percent of doing business is showing up. Yeah, and and right before the right before the show, um, Bill and I watched the end of um, this series we were watching. It's called Black Mirror, and I, you guys might have heard of it before. We talked about it before. It's a British special kind of show. It's like three 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 longish episodes a year, something like that. Black Mirror. It's like a miniseries. It's yeah. O. Henry yeah. meets Rod Serling. Yeah. It's so freaky, though. There's something about, okay, the, I was reading a little piece about British sitcoms versus American sitcoms, like the British version of The Office versus the American version of The Office. And because they say a lot of TV programming, including Black Mirror, comes out of the BBC. I think it does. I, I'm not sure Black Mirror does, but the the office i think had was involved the office the B- is, yeah definitely 
Yeah, and the and the BBC is more like a Bernie Sanders type of thing, where it's like it's it's programming for the people. It's not advertised. It is. It's not advertised. <laughs> Everybody go for Bernie. I had to do. I had to say. That was well, I'm just good. trying to make it trying to make it relevant. But basically, it's for the people, not for the advertisers. It doesn't have you know the office is much darker in the British version. The guy is a loser. He's a true loser. The the head of the you know the 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 well, uh, the Ricky Gervais, Ricky Gervais character. character. And the people who are in the office know they're there until they can get out. It's like the end of your life until you can get out of there. And if you've ever no been to Slough, I mean, Slough is like... Yeah, yeah Steve Carell in, in the American version is more like just an idiot. Like, well, yeah, yeah right. And, but, and, but a good but Ricky Gervais' version Ricky is not. Ricky Gervais was never good-natured, and it's blacker. But anyway, so dark, Black Mirror, given the British tendencies, is extraordinarily dark and creepy dark and it's really good with imagining the very near future that's where it's always set maybe 10 20 years from now where technology is is exactly ugh, in terribly scary places and so we just finished some of them are too scary i have to stop in the middle yeah one of one of the chat people saying the first episode about had me ill yeah there's some oh my goodness the first episode was so gruesome um on the first season and the special we watched was a special Christmas special with John Hamm. Which was and, great. I mean, John Hamm was fabulous. Beyond good. Yeah, it was exciting. But it, Bill doesn't know this. I looked it up. There was a lady in, in, in this episode who her name is Una Chaplin. And she's the granddaughter of Charlie Chaplin and Eugene O'Neill. Uh, really, not only showbiz royalty, but, you know, royal. And she, she played the actor. She played a character. So you, you didn't know that was Una Chaplin. Really you mean the police officer? No, the girl in the uh, egg, in the cookie. Oh, that was you? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So anyway. So Eddie, Black Mirror. Black Mirror, highly recommended. And it, it kind of... I watched of, the intern this weekend, actually, myself. With the intern? The yeah, intern? Robert oh, right, right, right. Yeah, right. I've seen the intern. Yeah, I've seen that. That's yeah. a feel good. Yeah, it was I saw, good. I saw a feel good, loving movie. A movie that just it warms your heart. <laughs> Hardcore Henry. Oh, okay. Tell us about that. I heard you tell so somebody. Good. I overheard a chat. You were talking it, in PS it's chat. A, it's, it's such a great film. It's just amazing film filming. It's just. Is it again? Is it animated? Partially animated? No, it's all shot like first person shooter, like a video game. So oh. the whole thing is like from the perspective of like the person, like you are the character. Mm. He never talks in the entire thing. People mm. talk to him, and he just he can't really speak because of what's going on with him. Very very well done. Yeah. What's it called again? Hardcore Henry. Hardcore Henry. Oh, we'll look for it. We will look for it. Always looking for something oh, good. Heartwarming story. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Um, uh, well, you've just that, given me an idea for a movie that's amazing. But, but I mean, well, it just it it just popped in. You guys heard that? I want royalties. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was thinking when watching the Montel Chronicles that you know I hate to I mean I. I I don't know whether Christopher's thought about this, but it would make a fabulous uh, fiction where there's no attempt made to, um, you know, because I have this plot twist that I ca that came to me in watching the Montauk Chronicles, and that is, what if they, by diddling with the Montauk boys and the Montauk chair and all that, what if they had created inadvertently a superhero? 
you know, a really bent superhero from the process. That would be pretty cool. That and would be. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to Christopher about, in general, the how much truth there is and all that stuff. So that's, Here's the thing. Christopher is such a good filmmaker that he really should do something like that. Like that's what I'm saying, yeah. A real film, like a normal narrative film, you know, out of the Montauk story. That would be yeah. brilliant. And, and we, uh, I've taken a lot of notes. We will... Um, we will, and by the way, we do have a telephone number, which I have in front of me that you folks Uh-oh. can call. You can call. remember this. Go. Yes, go, here we go. Go, Nancy. Area code 786. Number is 786-245-8127, right in front of me. So if you have any questions about the, uh, the Montauk boys or if you have any questions about what happened at Montauk, call in. Call and ask Chris. Call and ask us. And we will tell you what the Illuminati will let us say. No more. And then but they'll I, start messing with our Skype sound and we'll be just done. We'll be gone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like our, uh, like our bell yeah. in the 90s. So, so, Chris, you've got children. What did you do today for Memorial Day or for the whole weekend? Did you do anything like burgers or anything? No, we didn't do anything today. We just were here having to kind of get our stuff uh, packed up and cleaned up and getting ready for the move. That's right. You're moving. Oh, yeah. where are you moving? Well, well, that we don't know. Yeah. I kind of got kind of the house I was in and owned by my brother-in-law's uh, older sister. And so the house got sold and it kind of was a bad time for us. We can't find a place right now. So, well, might go back to mom's. I don't know. Well, but if anybody out there. there is in the uh, general Roseburg Portland, yeah, Roseburg, Roseburg, Portland, Portland area. Yeah. Um, but not um, we're a sublime vis-a-vis where you are now. Well, I'm in kind of pretty much southern Oregon, which is, uh, if you wanted to say, closer to um, uh, Spring Springfield, I guess it would be, or Medford, excuse me, which is, you know, it's, I'd say, two hours from the California border. So oh. when before I was up in Sublimity, where I lived in my kind of, yep, and that was kind of more central, a little bit, and kind of maybe a little bit more northern central, and it was 130 miles away, and so... Um, yeah, but it's, it's a tricky deal, but, but, uh, we got until the 21st, they only gave us technically 35 days to get out and. Well, are you, are you friends enough so that you can kind of mostly move and come back and get other stuff and all that? Well, I would, except yeah, that I could do, but we got it going, um, uh, under century 21 is who she's got the, uh, renting through because through century 21 even though she owns the house she can go and give them a little bit of it and then they can deal with all the payments uh fixing up things to send people over to fix it blah 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 well uh they wanted us out by the 21st so they can get it all cleaned out so when the people that bought it mm-hmm. can come over and they can have it all put together right. yeah. so i don't really know what the head in details and and i thought about actually seeing if i could get the next See if we might be able to stay a little bit longer. Well, just find out when the closing date is. That's all. Yeah, there's. It sounds like you've got a yeah. little flexibility, but tell okay. your wife. Tell your wife that there are people, and I hope your your wife might be one. But there are people who really kind of enjoy moving. Very few people, I think. Not everybody likes it. But I hate moving off the couch. Yeah, Bill hates it with a passion. Yeah, I can't stand it. And well, the mother-in-law is showing up for her vacation that she's had planned for a year to show up to have to help us move and. So she's going to be doing that, and it's just kind of uh, not what I want to – but anyway, yeah, so it's a stressful times at uh, Chris Brown's house, but uh, nevertheless, that would make us stronger and more prosperous. Well, not only that, Chris Brown, stress. It, uh, moving is really, really stressful. I mean, people don't 
appreciate how stressful, but it's up there as number two or three. This is straight up there. It's so stressful. As, the wife and I argue and all that. And getting, yeah. Everybody's on each other's nerves. I mean, would you Bill, get like that too when you guys have well, to move and stuff? I no, mean, no, 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 no. It, no. We have a very simple move. I don't do anything. Yeah. No, but it's but it's, <laughs> but it's really it, we, in in the history of our being together. In the last, say, 20 years, I did write, in the last 40 years, I wrote it down, we've moved 20 times in the last 40 years, which kind of makes it every other year, but sometimes we moved more often. Uh, sometimes we moved less often, but, you know, one year, we actually moved, we, we literally moved uh, so we could rent our house out for a summer, just for the summer. So we moved just for the summer away from our house. Well, renters, you know, because we had a chance to make a lot of money from... Talk about the roaches they left. Oh, Uh, my God. Roaches, I mean, they were the size of dogs. Yeah. But but, but here's the thing, Chris. I think... They were French. I think when this kind of a a time is upon you, (laughs) when this time is, you know, this is a good time to keep going outside looking up because you'll, you know, if a sighting is going to happen, when you're stressed like this, it kind of breaks open your... It breaks open your reality a little bit because you just are kind of, you know, you don't take anything for granted. Um, you're thinking about so many things at once. And so, number one, you'll, you might have a sighting. And number two, um, if your wife enjoys it at all or, or, or either of your mother or your mother-in-law, then you just don't have to worry. It's fun for ladies who like this. I like doing it so much. I like well, thing up. I get that. It's just such stressful timing because it's time. We got to be like we have no place, uh, no time. So no places to find, and so it makes it tricky. But they, yeah, yeah. my wife, if she's like a, a flea on a dog's back, she'll be everywhere. You know, she could. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's um, cool. Very exciting. Yeah. But now, you know, and and the movie uh, Montauk. Uh, boys, not Montauk, what is it called? The Montauk Chronicles, uh, is interesting to us because we lived in an equally, equally weird, out of the way place for, um, how many years did we live there? A couple of years? Five we years? Lived there, yeah, we lived there for two years. That was also on the east end of Long Island. Yeah, see, way out, okay, the way that, uh, the United States, um, has its borders, if you will, if you, it, New York State ends in an, in a point called Montauk Point. It's way, way out there off of the end of a very long island called Long Island. But it's very long. And if you have, if you have a summer home out in Sag Harbor or the Hamptons or Long, or uh, Montauk, you are going to be driving back and forth on that, that highway that feature, is featured in the movie all the time. Sunrise you know? Highway. Sunrise Highway. And basically it's a very long island. You can't help but say that it takes like hours. What is it, two and a half hours? It's awful. It's just hours to traverse the island. Okay. All these different little, you know, it's a, it's a narrow spit and it's a, and there's a lot of people on that island too. So it's just so much people like compact, right? Yeah. And the funny thing about it is that Long Island also consists of islands off Long Island. Right. And we, so there's Shelter Island, there's Gardner's Island, there's, uh, then there are the Dumpling Islands. Well, see, when you, when you get to the end of Long Island, the um, land mass opens up like a crab claw, and in between those two crab claws are the north, what's called the North Fork and the South Fork, and Shelter Island is right in between, and you have to get to Shelter Island by a ferry boat. You can't drive to it, which is where we decided to take my son at this point uh, to raise the rest of his high school years. He was a uh, sophomore in high school doing poorly, so we up and moved him out to this island with the idea that smaller school, he would do better. He would be a small, a bigger fish in a smaller pond. 
and there'd be less drugs, we thought, because yeah, we thought. Somerville at the time was becoming a racist kind of a druggy kind of place for kids of, you know, this is the 80s. And so we took, we, we went out to Shelter Island, which as it turns out, my God, the place was just swimming, swimming in drugs because it's one of those places where the bad guys drop it off and switch it out. And yeah, uh, the mother ships heave to. Yeah, it's probably the cocaine they heave capital to off there. The edge, oh, and and the then rocks, all the fishing yeah. boats go out there and offload the mother ships that head back down to South America and they just bring it in. But it's sort of like the Montauk thing. When, when you get to the edges of a continent, strange things start to happen. And part of the context of the Montauk Chronicles, which we have to talk about and continue to talk about, is... There is something built up out there that is um, all cemented in. It's something that went down many, many layers, it looks like. And I really think the citizens, uh, you know, almost, I don't know, somebody ought to be able to dig it up, even though it's top secret and all closed off. It just seems like if crimes were committed there, it's a crime scene. Now, what happens to federal government land where you think crimes might have been committed? What's, what's the law there? Call the FBI. FBI. Well, I need more from you than that. Why? I mean, if there's federal land, jurisdiction goes to the FBI, obviously, but whatever agency uh, controls that land. So if that was a military site, then it's either then it's either the Navy um, NCIS or. Army CID or whatever particular. Well, it's called Camp Hero, and it was not Marines and not Coast Guard. Was it Army? Was it Air Force? Was it? Well, that's the thing. The, that's why I have to ask because they would talk because the, the the film talks about Air Force, but there was no Air Force. It was Army back in in yeah. the nineteen forties. Yeah. Well, and and I'm looking at Chad as we speak, and um, Tom. Hi, Tom. Tom. Tom has been on. The- the show, Tom Jensen, uh, he said he did the same thing with their son. I mean, at the time, I don't know how, I don't know how people are raising their children now, but you know, well, you do. You have four of them. Well, we were scared. We didn't, I mean, I'm just talking about how. No, we, no. Four grandchildren. Yeah, I know, but we're not raising them. And, I know. Good thing for them too. Yeah. But um, yeah, but but the fact is, um, uh, I was going to say something. I lost my train of thought. But 300 shows, a, eh? And I've only lost my train of thought. They'd be, as, they'd be as lazy as we are. Yeah. What? When they No, I'm just saying that when they come, they just sit on the couch like lumps. Who, oh, all of our grandkids. Yeah. Well, you see, I don't know whether you guys are worried yet, but the fact that everybody is spending their time looking at a little screen is really crazy. It's got, you know, looking at it from the outside... I never in a million years would have thought that anybody could make anything that would amuse the mechanic under the car and the lady at the hairdressers and everybody in between. Everybody finds something to like in their little telephone and they and they squint at it. And, you know, anyway, so, yeah, I think that's a bit. Now, what's so funny is that there was this article in the Washington Post about this little 13-year-old kid um who lives online that's her life and she's in middle school and the thing that so was just so fascinating is that from listening to her respond to the interviewer you get to hear that the things you think are newfangled are really old fangled 
What do you mean? Well, like for her, Facebook is passe. Mm-hmm. Her generation doesn't even look at Facebook anymore. Mm. You, you know what's weird? Um, I, I, it, they moved we, on to Instagram, Bill. Instagram. That's exactly yeah, they right. Love they moved on to Instagram. Yeah, it's much much better. But here's here's the thing: when when I I have delightful grandchildren, and particularly my granddaughter, she's more delightful than any human being I've ever met. But even she, if you try to move move that thing away from her, or anywhere go near, she will actually scratch at you. They are so kids are so aggressive at continuing their games. If you try to pull it away and say something like, "Well, we ought to," you don't, and you learn as a grandparent early in, just don't touch it. Just you know, look over their shoulder and pretend it's interesting because the only hugging you'll get is hugging the child while the child plays with their thing. And whoa, I, I'm a little scared by that. To be honest, well, my little two-year-old has a uh, little tablet he runs around with that plays all his little sprout cartoons. Yep. So there yeah. you go. Yeah, and some of the kids are extremely hooked on it, is what I'm saying. And, and the grandkids I'm describing are the most outdoorsy grandkids you'll ever see. But when they are inside, boom, they're on the couch, uh, and they're deep hooked inside the, the mach- deep yeah. inside their machine, and quickly. I mean, it's so it's interesting what's going to happen. Technology um, is really like incredible. Like the way kids are so easily infused with the technology of today. I mean, I've seen like four or five year olds yeah. with tablets and they're like fully and do you think that? And do you yeah. think that's by accident? No, it's definitely not. It's definitely well, not. You know, but I don't think there's a grand plan. Um, I uh, think the, there is. I think there is. Yeah. Well, well that's, that's our topic tonight. Um, it's a really important topic. Is there an Illuminati? Uh, you know, are the Illuminati partially alien? Is that what it's all about? And we're just all little slaves and stuff. Um, and we have gone this far without saying Trump. Yay. <laughs> and there you go. And then you ruined it. And then I said it. <laughs> but, oh, by the way, this is, yeah. okay, now I know why I wanted to bring up uh, Black Mirror. There is a sh- uh, one of the little shows in Black Mirror, one of the se- segments, talks is about a, you know, a uh, puppet who becomes really popular and gets elected to office becomes worldwide phenomenon. You have to, you can't watch that one without thinking of Trump. And what could happen when you're only electing him because it's fun and you want to burn it down, you want to see what's going to happen. You don't know who's behind him. And that's the biggest problem because he's completely fake. He's, he's completely, completely, uh, who's going to run, who's going to run the puppet strings? It's, you know? this is the car, this is the Carl Icahn, uh, presidential campaign. Who who is Carl Icahn is well I ran across him from the TWA eight hundred book, but um because he's the guy who invested in TWA and really did a job on that company. And but the fascinating thing is that if you look at what Donald Trump like who he succumbs to is Carl Icahn. In Atlantic City, Carl Icahn and Donald Trump, Carl, Carl Icahn is an investor. And there are mega investors like Icahn, like the late um, uh, Kirk Kerkorian is another one. Warren Buffett is another one. They really all they do is invest. And they move money around and they move stock around. And so um, Icahn and Trump got into a fight uh, in Atlantic City. And Icahn beat the crap out of Trump. And to this day, Trump really sucks up to Carl Icahn, who's endorsed him for president. You mean a physical fight? What? No, no, no. I mean, just a financial fight. And um, Icahn just ran rings around this guy. Well, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, what would it take for Trump's star to start to dim? And I think 
the number one thing and the only thing that will do it is if he's not worth what he says he is, if he's really not that rich a guy. Because back the last time I heard his finances, he was worth only between three to 600000 and that was it. And that was a while ago. That was when he was in one of his dark periods when he had but at, but then at another time, I remember turning to Bill because he had more debt than he had anything right he, so he was, was a, he was a washing debt he was and see that's the other thing too, which really scares me i I was as addicted to debt as Trump talks about this fascination with debt. I mean there is a way you can use debt as leverage. And I mean, when I was in real estate stuff, that's that's what I would do. I, I used debt as leverage. And you could move it. You could swing it. You can lay it over here. Uh, here, you could lay it over there. And the fact is the debt generates money, believe it or not, if if you do it right. Well, and that's exactly what Trump is saying, the way he handles real estate. Debt generates money. Debt generates cash. You, know, you can the, discount business debt. You can go shy on business debt, but try that with sovereign debt. What is sovereign and what, debt? A sovereign debt is what the United States owes. That's what it owes. That's sovereign well, what, debt. What, what is their debt? Debt is debt. What's the big difference? It's, it's, it's different. Sovereign debt means that if you go shy on the pot or you try and discount something – what you're really playing with is the full faith and credit of the United States. Whereas with real estate, with businesses, you could swing debt around, refinance debt, discount debt, get into deals for debt, um, threaten bankruptcy with debt. And, and what you do is you basically make money by increasing debt and you play with interest rates. And that's how hedge fund operators work. Well, what everybody said, the, 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 the legend was that Donald Trump owed so much that, that the um, banks just kind of held him together. Well, that was the whole point. It, in Art of the Deal, which I read, in Art of the Deal, Trump makes two very, very key points. If you overburden yourself with debt against banks, you own the banks. They don't own you. Now, that's not original to Trump because that was really in Robert Allen's book, Nothing Down, which came out before Art of the Deal. I remember that, actually. Then remember Robert Allen's book. Right. Um, so, so Robert Allen argued that go ahead and just borrow like crazy from banks because, quite frankly, when there's a loan officer that's in way over his head to you, then you control that loan the bank doesn't control. In other words, you could say to them, "If you call it in, I can't pay anything." But that's if you right, let me pay and it so you're stuck with half, the property. By half, so yeah, right. So so and and that was how debt was negotiated in the wild seventies and eighties, and that was how people did it. Not not so much today, but but it was that mentality that really got us into a lot of trouble. So all I'm saying is that you do that with sovereign debt. So why are you? Why is Angel? Why are you so silent, Angel? He's learning. I'm just learning. I'm observing. Nah, you're 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 you got something. You got something. Say something about. Um, I've got, I've got oh, nothing. Happening is worth the bottom of the hour. Yeah, worth the bottom of the hour too. Yeah, I'm actually communicating with our guest who's uh, waiting in the wings, and okay. uh, we're going to take. Ready to go. Okay, so here we go. So everybody, um, stay with us. We are your co-host, Bill. That's me and Nancy Burns on Future Theater Live on PSN Radio and the Dark Matter Digital Network, coming back with our guest, Chris, and talking about the Montauk Boys and the Montauk Chronicles. No flipping, no changing. See you on the other side. 
Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954 That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com And we are back with our guest, Chris Gratano, and we are talking about the Montauk Chronicles and Chris's fabulous movie. Thanks for joining us tonight, Chris. I, I, I really did enjoy your movie. You did a good job. Really good oh, job. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I, I have just – I well, I've, first of all, I know a lot of the people that were in the movie only because Al Bielek would call me like on a regular basis uh, about Phil Corso and the Day After Roswell book. But the um, – one of the things when you came across at the very end of the movie, spoiler alert, you come across this like um, entrance way, this blocked out entrance way in the woods. 
Um, were you tempted to try and um, a jackhammer off that lid? Yeah, I mean, I you know, when I'm out there at Camp Hero, I think about those things, but I'm also very realistic about it, you know, because the security out there seemed to just show up when I was shooting. You know, I was the cinematographer on the film, so when I was shooting, security would show up. So realistically, bringing a gas-powered jackhammer out into Camp Hero, trying to break into one of their structures, is going to attract the park security. So, I mean, these are reasons why, I, and I kind of brought that up in the film, is that why I didn't try to break through. So, I mean, I did get in the tower. I was in the st- all of the structures that were above ground. Right. I, but, mean, I mean, my question about that is um, who, what is the agency handling security there? Well, it's, it's I believe, state-owned. It's a state park. So, so the, the New York State handling Park. security, right. yeah, I suspect they're being hired because I saw some greenskeepers that are obviously locals because I think uh, one of the greenskeepers happens to be the son of the same guy that owns the movie theater out there. Right. But um, and he's a nice guy and he's just hired to you know well, take care of things. Did you talk to the locals much in the court? How long did it take? Very. For yeah, what what was the length of time this movie took out of your life? Would you say? Well, Nancy, I made two movies. So the one you saw was the second. Two completely different wow. films. The only thing that was retained from the first movie was Al Bielik's interview. But, again, it was re-edited completely, resourced from my original source tapes that I shot with Al in 06. Well, you know, did, uh, did you release the first one? I did. I did. I had public screenings of it for a year. And I didn't release it because I wasn't happy with it. And I, you know, this is a rough thing for somebody who worked on a movie for and spent all his money and time and then just threw it away and started from scratch again. And I'm not a rich guy. So it was it was it was a rough decision. You know, well, I I have a feeling that we might have. I think I might have seen it. Maybe. Is there footage in the first of Bielik that isn't in the second? Uh, There's. There's footage that, yeah, there's a little bit in the first that isn't, but there's more in the second that mm-hmm. isn't in the first, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, because you know, I, I have to go a, back. I, yeah. need to, I needed to reevaluate what I wanted to do with it. It was a completely clean slate. It's not like I just transferred scenes over. I never, That's amazing. I, I, amazing. So tell us how you first, how did you first hear about this, the whole Montauk thing? Well, I, I mean, when I was a little kid in the early 80s, I was, uh, you know, spending my summers out at Camp Hero and my first encounter with it was walking down the beach at Montauk Point with my family and a military guy came out and stopped us and said you can't go any further and I remember asking my uncle why and he explained that there was some kind of base a little further down the beach so we flash forward to when I was in I think I was in high school or it was my first year of college that was um, you know 1995 and um uh a friend gave me the book, and honestly, I wasn't really impressed by it because if anyone that has that very first book, the Preston Nichols, the first Montauk book that came out, it's a very thin right. book. And there's not much in it, you know, mm-hmm. there's, in terms of information or anything else. And as you know, the Montauk experiments and story right now, uh, it's much different than it was explained in that book. Was more like some kind of whimsical science fiction. Oh, let me tell you something. When you're talking about Al Bielik and you're talking about Preston Nichols, you you realize that about I would say sixty percent of Al Bielik's story 
was not in your documentary because he really believed that um, his mind was floating back and forth between 1943 and uh, he believed he was a time traveler and there was actually the uh, um, he had multiple identities I mean I know I shot three hours of interviews with Al and he did tell that story but again you have a two yes of course I I mean I was with him for uh, two afternoons you couldn't include both of those in the same movie well, think about it for a second. I, I can't tell the story for everybody who already read the books and already just for them, you know, Absolutely. and then just arbitrarily start going to different places. And we have two hours, 13 years at Camp Hero to tell the tale. If I went over to the Philadelphia Experiment and Al's oh. story, that would have taken at least five minutes to set up an additional 15 minutes to establish. And it you would have never, ever gotten stock footage of that stuff either. Because what are you going to do? Do stock footage of the that's degaussing a, that's coils? A documentary. This was about yeah. the Montauk experiments. You know, and that's, that's, right. that's what I thought. But after what I saw with this particular movie, this version, I can safely say that you uh, people could give you a contract to illustrate anything. I think you could figure it out and come up with it. I, I don't think, I don't think the Philadelphia Experiment would be much of a challenge because look what you tried to show. You tried to show, okay, like we'll talk about the movie is not a cliffhanger. It's not a spoiler. Everybody can kind of research the story and where the movie takes you is pretty much what's out there on the internet already i think there's no the only person thing that's new in the movie is the the strange character at the end james bruce right sure, but wait a second this is a unique perspective you can say hey i'm going to go on the internet and look at youtube and now i can't see anything new in your film but my entire movie is a different you don't get that anywhere else i mean i i went in i personally sat down with Alfred Bielek, Preston Nichols, Stuart Swerdlow, uh, personally went into the tower myself. You know, all of these things were conducted as my own unique interview. Right, right. So I, I, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a yeah. whole vision, you know. It's no, 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 no. What Nancy means is basically that the, the that the basic premise of the story is terrible things went on at Camp Hero. Terrible things went on at that Montauk base. Al Bielek told the story of being there. Preston Nichols told the story of being there in two books. Right, but what I'm trying to say is I'm not going to give spoilers because um, the the real spoiler of this movie, if if there's going to be one, is what do you know? Is it a true story or is it a complete made up story? You know that that's a, that's a spoiler that's still out in the air. We don't know. It's hard to say. There's one thing that I have right now that I've been sitting on and working and researching since I finished this, the film that you saw. Um, and I'm not, re- I can't really talk about it because it's part of a new thing that I'm working on. And contractually now I've agreed not to really talk about it. But this might be evidence. And this is a paper trail, a real one mm-hmm. that might lead to some actual evidence. And I think it's important when talking about the, the Montauk project now. It doesn't matter if you believe that the time travel experiments occurred or there was a an entire collection of different alien species down there. I think the focus should be there were illegal killings there. Right. You know, there, are exactly. legal, there, there are illegal killings in war and things like that. But right. this is a different thing. And then there were human subjects that were kidnapped, brought down to a base and use it doesn't matter what it was for it doesn't matter you know i can't justify it if you're telling me oh we did it for the good of time travelry we did it to right. for the good of humanity i don't believe it was for that either and if you're just kidnapping children and killing them by the thousands i don't yeah, but believe that's where that's where it, good yeah. in the project. 
that's where I have a problem, and I want to. <clears throat> do you have any evidence in your own? I mean, do, are you convinced that even one single boy was ever taken in down there? Do you do you do you believe that that's happened even to one child? Okay, here's the thing: we know for a fact that MK Ultra happened. Mm-hmm. We know right. for a fact that the Tuskegee medical experiments happened, and that Correct. was a disgusting, disgusting thing that happened. Correct. So if our governments were capable of doing that. Can you put it past them for basically making another identical uh, happening simultaneously, basically at the same time that MKUltra may have been happening or just after in another location or several other locations? No, I don't put it past them. I, I do believe that it happened. I just don't know what's true and what isn't, what was hallucination, what wasn't. And I, you know, you can go and read all the literature online. That's fine. We can all do that. What I tried to avoid was reading and repeating what I read somewhere else and not, you know, I wanted to have my first-hand experience. And my first-hand experience, cut into a two-hour movie, is what I delivered to the world. You know, it's, it's, it's what I saw. It's what I collected along the way. I mean, I went to the town of Montauk, spent years there on and off interviewing locals, and a lot of them on camera. A lot of them were in the first film, but I just felt it wasn't mm-hmm. much. I felt like it was going to take up too much time if I just stuck them in there just to have them. What, the what, did, inter- the lo- what did the locals say about the base? Okay, the most interesting conversation I had, uh, well, one of the locals is in the movie, Paul Fagan. He grew right, up there. Right, right. But it was the archivist at the Montauk Library where I spent a lot of time. And she refused to be on camera. No matter what I said to her, she just didn't want to do it. Yeah. At first, she said this whole thing is a joke. It never happened. And of course, you know, there's this kind of local pride in certain places. If there's anything that's out of the ordinary in your story, the people who live there don't want that. Mm-hmm. There's very rare cases where people use that to their advantage to sell things and stuff. And in Montauk, they haven't really tried to cash in on this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So they're, a lot of people are against it. They don't even want to hear about it. But then the more I talked with her, the more she revealed. So towards the end of the conversation, she was like, well, you know, there was this one time that everyone in the town was complaining, complaining of these massive headaches. And, uh, you know, our electronics were out of control and chaotic. And, you know, everybody felt very strange and we all talked about it. I said, well, now, what do you mean? Nothing happened. That's something, isn't it? So obviously something was going on there. Um, and that could have been, as as you know, what Alfred and Preston had referred to as the kind of mass mind control that was being tested. In, well, there you know, are, okay, in, well, there are a couple of things that we do know. For example, um, we know that right after the war, World War II, right after the war, um, the military branches came into possession uh, well, and the OSS came into possession of this as well, but Army G2 mainly, of all the records from the psychological experiments, not just in the concentration camps, but the psychological experiments, well, they, they were concentration camps too, at places where the whole Nazi space program was going on. Because those were some of the doctors, like this person, Struckhold and a few others. Are Davis. we talking about paperclip? We're talking about, yeah, what we're talking about is paperclip was the transition point, but they wound up at, at, at NASA, but what they brought with them 
were um, the the uh, the records of the experiments they'd conducted at places like the Owl Mountains at Poland and Pinamunda and places in uh, northern France. They were launching the V2s. In other words, they were using human beings as guinea pigs, especially in Poland, to test out the pressurization of spacesuits and things like that. So, but they were also doing psychological tests. And the right. results of those tests and the types of tests they were conducting, they came into possession of the Navy in the late 1940s, say 46, 47. And by the time the early 1950s were floating along, we were actually – there were actually scientists, uh, psychologists who'd worked for the Navy who were actually conducting these tests on – willing college students and some of them were really destroyed so we so we know about those resiliency tests right. uh for mk ultra we know that uh, right at the end of world war ii and then again at the end of the korean war uh the soviets and the chinese both the communist countries were sending in – they'd kept American service personnel after the war. You know the scene in the movie Patton when George C. Scott says to Edward Binns, uh, playing Beatlesmith, um, uh, let me attack the Russians. I can get us a war right away. Well, the history behind that conversation was that the Soviet army – had um, surrounded elements of Patton's Third Army in the eastern sector of Berlin, in the Soviet sector of Berlin, and just took them back to the Soviet Union. The reason was to use their identities as playbacks, sending spies back into the United States under deep cover. That was the rationale for MKUltra. That was the original rationale, because the early psychiatrists who were performing those experiments up in Canada, they weren't doing it in the United States. They were doing it in Canada. They were doing it to break open the deep cover, and through MK Ultra, they found out they could actually program individuals, and that was this kind of, the book by Don Bain, The Programming of Candy Jones, who was... Um, and when does this provenance lead to Montauk? Uh, Montauk had been a very, very. I mean, sensitive... I know, but I no, no, no. To... I mean, no. It was um, Montauk had been a very sensitive area uh, throughout both world wars. In both world wars, well, who's the first person who whispered that there was a Montauk? Project? Well, no, no, no. Wait a minute. In, in no, both the, world the first wars... people that came out public about the Montauk project were Alfred Bielek, Preston Nichols, and then yes. later Stuart Swerdlow. Exactly. Okay. That, that, there were only. Four guys talking about it right. in the beginning. Now everyone's talking about right. it. Right, it was only Albielic. Originally, it was only Albielic. Uh, that was Duncan Cameron. And what about Peter Moon? Peter Moon is a publisher. He's right. Not, uh, he had nothing to do with it. He had no, He doesn't add anything to it. But but remember, Preston Nichols also wrote an interesting book called The Music of Time. Um, have you read that book? No, I didn't. I, it's you know, very I, interesting. I read... I read The Alien Connection by Stuart Swerdlow, and mm -hmm. I read thoroughly the first book. And then my interest was to go and talk to these men personally. Well, and I heard a lot yeah, about yeah. Of what was in the other books, but I felt if I were to adapt those books into a documentary, that would be a very biased perspective, and I wouldn't go out and find my own evidence or find my own perspective, which is what my interest is. My well, interest it it also turned the movie into a miniseries, actually, that there's so much information. Yeah, yeah. Hours well, of the three men, uh, did you do you rate them all equally on trustworthiness? 
that's diff- that's that's really a, I I don't have black and white answers. I can't I can't give those because I don't know. I if I would have to have known them each for thirty years, you know, mm-hmm. and spend a lot of time around them. I try to spend as much time around them as possible. Alfred, I was only and fortunately, you know, able to spend some time with him before he passed away. Right, uh, right, afternoon. Yeah. My observation at the time, this was okay. Uh, I'm a guy who came from uh, a world of science fiction and loving the paranormal and loving horror films. Okay, right. so then I'm sitting there this afternoon. I'm just telling you frankly, honestly, sitting mm-hmm. with this man one afternoon, and he's telling everything references to vampires being real. And I have all of this on tape. Okay. And it, regardless of what you believe, you still can't just believe everything because someone wrote it in a book or someone told you. You have to take your time with these things and you have to do your own personal research. And your own personal research isn't just going on YouTube and reading books. It, you have to go out into the world and try and discover things. That was my interest and that was my motivation behind making this film. I was like, okay, these stories are off the wall. And I don't mean the government program aspect of it. That's believable because it's happened, Mm -hmm. as we all know, and we just discussed. Right. But when it comes to the very specific uh, ideas of time travel and the different aliens that were involved and all of the science that was there that cannot be displayed to us at this very moment in time, okay, it's all written and talked about in different kind of misty circles, but we just, no one can show it to us at this very second. You, you have to be cautious with these things. And that was my promise to myself and promise to the audience was that I wanted to go and absorb these things and not tell you what to think. Mm-hmm. I will not just sit and repeat what someone else wrote in a book and then try and thrust it upon you as solid history. In fact, I won't do it. So, <laughs> given, what, so given what Swordlow told you and said on camera, what is your um, estimation of... Um, whether he's telling the truth. And he lives in a pretty fancy place. Is he a wealthy man? I would say I would say he's well off at this time, yes. And is it uh, from is it is he is this his only profession? Um, well, I, I he didn't get, nobody got rich or made a lot of money off of I don't know what the books made for Preston Nichols and everybody else it has nothing to do with me. But Nobody got rich off the Montauk thing. I think what Stewart's making money from are his lectures and his programs that he conducts around the world. The guy flies around the world, teaches people his ideas and things that he had learned at Montauk's techniques um, um, to resist mind control, to heighten your psychic abilities. And this is what he does. And, mm-hmm. you know, I actually attended one of his week long seminars. And, um, you know, the guy puts a lot, him and Janet, his wife, uh, put a lot of work into these things. So, and, and you know, I, I also see some of these seminars where they're like, you know, they'll pop open a bottle of wine and hang out and discuss the paranormal for a little while and take thousands of dollars from you to be there. Stewart's things aren't like that at all. They're, mm-hmm. they're really intense college level courses, uh, you know, seven hours a day, really intense. I guess some might even consider boring because they're just so filled with information. So, and, peop- and people feel they're being helped, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have it. He wouldn't have a recurring yes. business. Yeah. I know several people that really believe uh, this has helped them, that it's a positive force in their life. So. Well, you say you ask me if I trust them. Mm. Um, 
you know, I'm a very cautious guy. But I've seen a lot of things in my life so far. My life hasn't just been, you know, vicariously living through the television. I've I've met some bad people in my life, uh, seen violence in my life. Uh, so it's a little more difficult for me to trust people 100%. But do I trust Stuart is believes in what he's doing and that he's affecting people and that he's doing it with sincerity. From what I've seen, I've spent most, most of the time around Stuart. I, 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 yes, I could say yes. Uh, do I trust Preston? He's a different person. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I see conflict in Preston. I see conflict, whereas he's very well aware that there were a lot of people murdered in the program or may have been, if you don't believe it. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, this is a man who just loves and indulges and science and technology. Well, have you seen? I, yeah, have you seen him lay his hands to equipment and so forth? This is Preston. I was at Preston's, and he offered me an opportunity to go in his what he called a healing machine within his lab. Mm-hmm. So I laid down in this thing. It was seemingly makeshift uh, piece of equipment where it had a bed, and then it had this this tubular sections of lights that went above it. Mm-hmm. And then he seemed, you know, just in regard to his vernacular, he seems very well versed in in audio technology. Well, that's uh, what I wanted to tell you. The music of time lays out his other occupation or his other life. It's not he was one of the people who supposedly was behind the whole wall of sound technology. He was the producer for Chubby Checker. Um and he talks a lot about music was the vehicle to, in fact, entrance an entire generation. So, yep. yeah, that's a kind of interest. And so, so could, did he look like a musical genius to you, like a sound engineer genius? He seems very well versed in a lot of things, but that does not mean that ever. And I'm not, I'm not speaking with great doubt. I've just been immersed in this for a decade, and I'm still cautious at the end of it all. Uh, because you need to be. I'm not, you know, I, I, with everything I investigate or everything I read, you know, because that's how we get to the truth. If you're just going to be so automatic about things in terms of your belief system, um, that's a mistake. Especially well, thing- if you're putting more information out into the world. If you're just transferring it from one place to another and then spitting it back out, you really have to go and experience these things for yourself. Right, that's well, what the, I was trying to do. The thing that keeps hanging me up on Swordlow's story and, and also partly Preston's story is the aspect of time travel. Since they're talking about it, well, in the movie, but also in their conversations and things like that, they're talking about it very matter-of-factly. Like, there is no gee whiz, wow, holy mackerel. Right, and don't forget the time bomb, or the the bomb that Gordon, that Lee Siegel drops in the movie. And in the, uh, you know, about... That was very uh, interesting to me. Yeah. uh, Lee Spiegel talked about his experience with Gordon Cooper, one of our Right Stuff astronauts, and um, he said that Gordon Cooper explained to him that he was going to be part of some kind of time travel program. Right, right. And then then, um, right before we started the uh, the UFO Hunter series, on the day we kind of mustered for the pilot film, the... um, one of the people who joined us was uh, a retired test pilot who talked about working for the CIA. I no reason to believe he was telling a falsehood because he wouldn't go on camera. And he was working for the CIA. This was at this was in Nevada at Area 51. And 
<clears throat> he had gone into what was explained to him as a flight simulator. It was, it was like a telephone booth, but it was like a flight simulator. And he was asked to just respond as a test pilot to, to, uh, to various stimuli in the cockpit that he had to react to. They were testing out new systems. So he walks in. They basically buckle him down, whatever he's going to be. He's sick for just a matter of seconds, very nauseous. When, he, um, when the nausea subsides, he realizes as he gets out of the cockpit that he's on the other side of the hangar and he had no sensation of moving. There was no sensation of time passing. It was just he was sick and suddenly he's all across this large hangar. Well, I've even seen the hangar at Area 51. And so assuming for the sake of argument that that's true, We've been working on these kinds of experiments for a long, long time. Sure. And I believe that they have been worked on. But again, you know, my goal was mainly to collect the information and allow you to have the same experience that I did. At the very end, did I have any proof? I, you know, in most of these conceptual films, or most of the films that are regarding anything paranormal or conspiratorial, we never end up with proof in the end it's just trying to bring you some kind of fresh experience and i felt that having the you know usual suspects in the usual studio situation would have been quite boring because we've done that about a thousand times a thousand times right yeah well did uh, did the uh, principals after they saw the film say that you went too far on the horror or would they say that now nah, that's kind of what happened? how do you translate children being drugged up beaten raped and murdered it much if i was to translate it into something more accurate, it would have been 10 times the horror movie that I yeah. made. So, you know, anyone that has an issue with that, their imagination isn't working correctly when they read about murder, kidnapping, uh, monsters. I mean, like these aliens were, you know, operating on people and, you know, children being kidnapped and drugged and beaten and raped. This is what they said happened. Right. And there's also the feeling that Nazis were there. As part of the whole, you know, just handing off. Now we're gonna, now we're gonna, um, you know, we're gonna experiment on you, homeless kid, who has a DNA, DNA that we're looking for. But um, in terms of finding some kind of proof, um, you only have the experiencers. You only have Swordlow, Preston Nichols, and Bielik. Uh But then you have the strange fellow at the end, James Bruce. Can you tell us how he came into the situation and why? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I was almost finished with the film. Uh, and it's so strange because I had almost completed it in one year. I was just determined to like something that took me the first time out about six years on and off through other projects. And then I just wanted to just go back and tackle it. And I did it. I worked nonstop and put everything I had into it every day. And, um, then James Bruce comes along. That's not his real name. Mm -hmm. uh, he coached me online. He wrote me an email and, I, uh, there was just something about him that seemed very honest to me. Now, you know, you have, you have a, in my, from my observation, there are a lot of liars out there in these communities of, uh, paranormal or who claim, make these claims that some of them are time travelers, some of them yes, are psychics, yes, yes. you know, and they're really big time liars and it's very easy to pick them out. Yep, I'm yep, not going to yep. sit and call them out right now, but, uh, so here's something very particular about someone who doesn't lie. 
You know, like, and I, I use this analogy sometimes. I, I was uh, a few years back, well, about 16 years back, um, I found a, my best friend at the time dead, okay? And uh, I remember the day clearly, I, vividly, every little bit and piece, and I could tell you the story in detail, which I won't, but I remember everything about that day. And when someone tries to tell me a story about how they traveled back in time and spoke to George Washington or saw aliens or saw this or saw that, you, you better give me some details, especially mm-hmm. if it's a 13 year stretch that you were there every day. You better not tell me I don't recall or the details better not be vague and thin because you know what? I'm going to start to believe that you're lying to me mm-hmm. because if I had an experience like that, I'd, I'd be able to give you the most minute most singular, most detailed recollection. Yeah, unless they unless they gave you a screen memory that blocks it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, then why are you telling the tale on the internet and going mm-hmm. on shows talking? Right. True. Your mind has been blocked. True. So, but I believe there are some people out there that are telling the truth. And yeah. one of them, you know, is Travis Walton. I think that guy's really, he's telling the truth um, about his experiences. In the case of the Montauk tale, here's the thing. I believe Preston Nichols is telling the truth. Um, I believe Stuart Swerdlow is telling the truth. But I think their memories are hazy for several reasons. I mean, maybe I, I'm under the impression because of my personal time I spent with, with Preston is that there's only so much he's going to tell. Hmm. Because I was running the camera for hours one day. And this was, you see a lot of that footage in the movie. Mm-hmm. And he was getting very upset and very uncomfortable when we talked about the boys, because this is something that I feel personally he doesn't want to face. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't want to face it because it, he, he believes in the science and he believes in what was developed there. And he doesn't want to face that all these boys were murdered. It just, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it's something that he can't face. But when the camera was shut off, he turned around to me in a completely different tone and said, you know, Christopher, there's only some things that I'm, I I can tell you on camera. I'm not going to tell you everything. It's Mm -hmm. almost like he just straightened up and anything that was kind of off about Preston immediately straightened up and he looked me in the eyes and it was almost like he was a different guy for a second. Hmm. So something very genuine. So like back to James Bruce, there was some, some kind of natural flow to the stories. It was as if James was was recalling something he experienced but couldn't give me the details as if you would rehearse by doing all your research online and getting every little detail to tell me and every little bit and piece. He was just trying to tell me as somebody who experienced something. Well, he took you he took you around a, p- a part of the even though you'd been there for years, he took you a way that you didn't know, right? In the end of the movie and I yeah, I, I, you know, no years I was there, I did not see that place and that was an honest moment because he said let me i said show me where out because he claimed al belick took him to that place and they mm-hmm. went down into a room and there was a chair there and i have hours of interviews with james bruce you probably see james in a future volume that we're working on it's just i couldn't i would have ha- i would have been working on the movie for another year you know if yeah, i was really yeah. just and then it would have been a three or four hour movie too because it's so hard as an editor to fit all of that information in a picture and make it work as a movie. I could have had two hours of just talking heads. But again, I'm a filmmaker. That's not a movie. You know, right. I've seen, seen right. movies win awards at some of these festivals for being a movie. And I'm sorry, but talking heads juxtaposed with a couple of, you know, 
images pulled off the internet is not a motion picture. Well, it's you've just- won awards for this, I take it, right? I haven't really um, researched and pulled all that from your site, but I'm sure you have. If you, you know, please tell me you've won awards for this. I got one for it at the uh, Philip K. Dick Film Festival. Uh-huh. I, I appreciate awards. It depends on who it's coming from, if it's genuine. You know, there are a lot of, I'm sure you know, uh, Nancy, there are a lot of politics when it comes to awards. It's like yeah. sometimes they are already predetermined who's going to get it before they even know who's being nominated. You know, so well, I, I, ho- I hope your numbers, are your viewing numbers high? Um, are they reaching your expectations, for example? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I, we've had people order the picture from all over the world, um, and people write to me every week about it. And good, that's I, what I wanted. Yeah, I was yeah, I mean, hoping. I, no, I'd I, give you an award, bro. It was awesome. It <laughs> Thank was awesome. you very much. <laughs> but no, I you know it's it's something that means something to me because obviously you know I never expect I you who works for ten years and spends all their money on something. I mean, it's a total gamble. It wasn't about money. It was it was about. Um, you know, getting something right, getting the story right, at least in one, the first volume. So this is mm-hmm. volume one. Right. And right now, I'm, I'm actually working with a uh, production company. This is the second one now, uh, developing something for network TV based on my research and my investigation on all of this. Uh, and it, it, it'll allow more information. Excellent. You uh, mean on uh, your research on Montauk? Yes. Yeah. Wow. We've been working on it for quite some time, and we're pretty close to making it happen. I'm sorry I can't tell you the network, but it's a big one, and um, well, you know, we're um, very, very close. Is it going to be fictional or uh, narrative? Uh, narrative, narrative, nonfiction. How how's it going to? Is it going to be your story? What you find? I, no, I think what we've been discussing is um, backtracking a bit and looking to see what led to the Montauk project and then where it might be implemented today. Why? Nice, okay. Yeah. When something nice, of nice. course is being developed, they're developing it for use. So since 1983, where has it been used? And that's kind of the idea of the show. What, where, where is it? Where was it used? Where did they use it? All of well, the technology that was being developed. I turned to Bill during the movie at one point because I I always I have the controls and I pause the movie, you know, if I come up with if I have a thought. And I I was thinking a cool idea if you have the capability, if you have the controls is to have the one of the boys, you know, turn into a superhero like the the uh, programming just doesn't go the way the handlers thought. And he's basically, you know, you know, is a superhero. We we see that we believe that you know just throwing that out there that's um, interesting no there's a um i think there's a gentleman who contacted me he's the son of a famous comic book artist um and he want he made uh he wrote a comic book that uh, i think it's something shield or he he contacted me wanted to do it i i proposed to him to, to i got the name a, for you the montauk man the montauk man no but yeah. no, really, he had an idea for – see, my idea for a graphic novel would be origin stories of things that I was trying to establish in this film. Uh, and I love the graphic novel format. We actually made one already uh, based on one of my screenplays. But this gentleman used some of the Montauk project within his superhero story, like literally. Nice, uh, nice, nice. So I, I don't know. I mean I wanted to collaborate with him on something, but I have my own ideas uh, for what the story should be. And right, one of them, right. which is like looking back at characters like Jack Pruitt and finding out what, where he came from, what branch of the military he was in, why he yeah, was absorbed yeah. into the project, things like that. 
Yeah. Um, also, there's a couple other little um, tendrils that are very intriguing to researchers. One is there was a you have a there's another movie that's online, and it's the movie of the part, sort of the uh, roundtable after the premiere. Okay, um, and you made a little movie out of all the principals are willing to talk a bit, including James Bruce. Yes. Um, yeah. Now there was a lady who asked you some questions from the audience, and she mentioned um, a fellow, perhaps, Dr. Dick Anderson, is what I think I heard her say, somebody who's, in fact, involved in time travel experiments as we speak. Do you, do you know anything more about that, perhaps? Did so, she- you know, my focus right now has been on um, the Montauk Project, and obviously in my new picture, but I, okay. again, I, I think this show will allow me to branch out. We've We've been putting ideas together for the show for the last three months, and we have a really great collection of of things. One of which is this paper trail I'm telling you about. That it, this this literally might lead to proof. Well, tell, what, what can you tell? Fun. What can you tell us about the paper trail? Okay. What little, yeah. Vaguely, I can tell you that there's a major company that was funding something, some kind of program at Brookhaven Labs, and some kind of program at Camp Hero around that time. Mm-hmm. They were also developing. Uh, chemicals and alloys that were also being sent. And this is from somebody who worked for this company for well over a decade and oversaw very particulars of the transactions and paperwork that were happening. So like I was telling you before, Hmm. if this person wasn't lying to me because they were giving me, I mean, they could give me hours and hours of details. I spoke to this person two hours on the phone and it was nothing but just incredible details. Mm. You know, there's a, as you know, I could sit here and make up a story and tell you I was a time traveler and I fought in Vietnam. Then I traveled back to the Civil War. I hung out with Lincoln. He, you know, he was my best buddy at the time. We shared a sandwich, you know. But right. those are vague and ridiculous details. And then when someone gives you, you know, minute, fine details, it's almost like either they're the most incredible liar in the world or they're telling you the truth. And well, there's was a there, cadence and a rhythm to the truth, you know? Was there much connection between Brookhaven and Camp Hero? In this particular situation, yes. There's a lot of connections between Brookhaven and, um, and this company. But remember, out, if, if, if you recall, in my movie, Alfred Bielek and Preston Nichols all said that their home base was Brookhaven Labs. There right. was a transport that would take them from underneath Brookhaven that went directly to Camp Hero. Right. The one thing that contradicts that story is they always made it sound like they were never topside, okay? And then when they met in the memory motel mm-hmm. to crash the project, that part of the story just doesn't make sense to me, and I'm being honest. So when Alfred Bielek, Duncan Cameron, and Preston Nichols met in the memory motel to decide to crash the project, this is a top secret, high beyond high security. Yeah, yeah. How are they going to let the three guys that are basically prisoners of the program mm-hmm. out for a sandwich to go meet at the motel unsupervised, mm-hmm. decide right. that they're going to destroy the program and then come back and do it? It does because because me, I think they want to be heroes in their own in their own difficult stories. That part right. is unbelievable, but yeah. That may have been fabricated for that first book because remember in the first book there wasn't much about boys being murdered at all. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, Brookhaven Lab, um, when, when we were doing our series, um, we were met by a CIA non-official cover officer from that area who said – this is out in Suffolk County – who said that um, 
Brookhaven was actually that that the work at Brookhaven to a large measure was run out of SUNY Stony Brook. And it was in that area. And it was that whole area where where really originally the OSS came out of that. And eventually that was uh, the beginning of the American spy services. Mm -hmm. So that is a very sensitive area when it comes to American military uh, and civilian intelligence. And And especially Brookhaven. Yes, and if that might be the place to begin to connect dots and actually prove that something was going on at Camp Hero that uh, is beneath beneath the things that they said were going on, like the basic operations that may have been happening after they were, you know, beginning to shut down everything. You know, the Sage Radar Tower is becoming obsolete and all that stuff. And what what is Brookhaven? What is its it's mission? An, it's a national lab. I mean, they do they do um, uh, they do uh, neutron collider experiments there, uh, subatomic particles. Uh, they have a lot of very advanced research, and one of the things that I found out when I was there is that we talked to the their, th- this was for the Brookhaven crash for UFO. And so we talked to the fire department because folks out in that area of Suffolk County saw Brookhaven fire apparatus there, but Brookhaven fire apparatus is not allowed to leave Brookhaven. It cannot leave. Only the locals, unless there's a mutual aid request. And they said they saw Brookhaven um, uh, fire apparatus. And so uh, we asked the fire chief at Brookhaven, so, so what was your stuff doing out on Sunrise Highway? So um, he actually says to us, no, it wasn't. And he says, here's the log. <laughs> I, 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 and he says, here's the log. And he, sure enough, there's the log for the dates in question, and there's no record. And so oh, oh, we're off camera. So I say to the guy, so tell me this. If you were told not to tell us you were off campus fighting a fire out of the national out of the national park out here um if you were told to do that would you lie to me on camera he said of course i would and he said that on camera right well he didn't say that on camera but he said it to me does anybody who's listening on this remember there used to be a character in the ufology field whose story was that he was super, super, super brilliant. And he was taken into the underground part of Brookhaven when he was a young child, and he'd go down there, and he was out, and he's not the four that you've mentioned. He's none of the people in your film, and, and he sort of then disappeared. He was on he was on the ufology circuit for a while, and he might, he might even be on Project Camelot, let's say. But he's, Do you recall his uh, his first name? Or? Well, I can't. I'm, I'm not not Andy Bashago. Not at all. No, I, but I'm, I'm not him. Huh? That's who no, I was thinking. But he was a guy. His big thing was that he was so super intelligent, and they came and they got him when he was a young lad, and they and they brought him in, and you know he he always tells the story of all the grown-ups were, were this is all Brookhaven lore the grown-ups were all talking and having you know like a party and he would overhear them he would be like a kid overhearing them and they they got to see how smart he was and how he's maybe it's the rocket guy i'm thinking of it's the rocket guy you know the rocket guy um i i don't know whether he's been discredited but he says he was like the youngest rocket guy ever and what was <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not bob lazar no, but no, no. it is his name is I, like yeah, I keep thinking his name is Gardner, but begins I'm, with an S or something. Who knows? I, I will. I will try to hunt him down before we next speak. 
and make sure that I lay it because it's okay. So now here's the thing. Uh, I did have one question in here. I want to grab it's Danny's. Uh, hi, Danny. Um, was research and this is important. Was research done on Camp Hero and its employees? Like, what was its up above ground? Uh, you know, surely there's paperwork on just Camp Hero as Camp Hero. You know, what right. was the two, well? The two top side gentlemen that we spoke with didn't want to speak on camera, so you can't force somebody to speak on camera that doesn't want to. And another person that we contacted just laughed it off and said, "No way." So what I'm assuming. And just based on all of my research in 10 years is that uh, it's very compartmentalized, like most military operations or military science operations, that, you know, most people aren't going to know what's going on in the next building. And their experience may have just been to watch a particular piece of equipment or watch a building or guard it. And so when someone says, well, there are aliens down there and the guy says, no, you know, I didn't. What are you talking about? Well, how, that wasn't how, how, how deep do you think it went? How deep Again, do you think? Yeah. Every claim that came out of the mouths of the gentleman that I interviewed, the main gentleman who brought this story into the world, they're huge claims. They're tall orders. I mean, they say it went miles deep. Well, uh-huh. you know, as you know, it's right on the ocean. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, miles deep. That's, that's what I'm told. And then there's a train that leads from there. Brookhaven Labs. Okay, yeah. Then, you know, the, Al said there was a train that went from New York to uh, Los Angeles. You know, I mean, Wait, they're all underground. Said, yeah, 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 yeah. Someone just wrote uh, wrote Bill Wood uh, in in the um, t- in the chat, and that that kind of vaguely rings a bell. We knew a Bill Wood. It's not the same guy, but the Bill Wood um, might have been the you know the super smart kid who was the smartest kid ever lived, and so forth. Yeah. But okay, now we had a we 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 know a guy named Ronnie Millone and he's pretty notorious in the UFO field. But during, Oh yeah, I know him very well. Yeah, but during the time we knew him, um he for reasons unknown had decided to go out to Montauk and I don't know whether he was with a crew or what, but he's he brought us back. It was it was uh, during the time he was going to be on UFO Hunters and going to write for UFO magazine. Um, before he didn't, but I have all these pictures on my hard drive of deep. He got pretty deep into the facility and took pictures of a lot of the stuff that was filled up with concrete. A lot of, I think the biggest clue of Montauk, um, to a non-engineer is the, the size of the, Cables that had to go in. Right, that that's one of the things know, that we he have plenty about. of that in the film, as you recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. showed you every entrance that was in the woods, all the entrances yeah. from the interior of the tower. Here's the other thing: I shot a lot of footage with a gentleman who I put out as a deleted scene, part of it, uh, who was a commercial fisherman, a shark fisherman, and he tells this story of a craft actually coming from underneath the water and hovering above his boat and then taking off. Uh, but we spent some time with this boat on sonar, and he was showing me pos- possible entrances for underground or aquatic craft that were coming from Camp Hero. Again, these are all claims. They can't really show 100% evidence yet. We'd have to get divers out there. But Yeah, um, yeah subs or something and get in there with a mini-sub. Yeah, now the, right. chat's, the chat's been busy. David Adair is the rocket guy. Yeah, that's who it is, but David is Adair. But is he the, also the Brookhaven guy, David Adair? Does he have a whole... David Adair, uh, David Adair was the rocket guy. I, he said he was at Area 51. Okay, that's so David Adair's different. story. Yeah. 
in other words, um, I, I've stayed away from your movie all these years because of the very thin reputations of Bielik and Preston and particularly Swerdlow. Um, and, and I, I think if there's, if there have been murders, that, that terrible story is a great cover to keep people away saying, oh, I it's agree. Just and that's how crazy. I feel. And yeah. I'm, I'm not saying they're liars. I'm just saying uh, my focus a uh, good. Uh, here's the other thing. I didn't make a movie to try and prove that it's true. And as you know, you saw the movie, so that's not what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in a world, my, my perspective is this. A lot of things in this world are interesting to me. Even hoaxes, a story behind a hoax is interesting. Yeah. So I want to hear all the details about the hoax, what went on in the guy's head. I mean, that's my job as a movie Stay maker. And a story. Mm-hmm. Sure. Whoever it is, you know, anyone that's <laughs> hoaxing, you know, I'm interested in hearing that too. So the idea behind the Montauk Project, my first uh, feeling about it after reading the first book was that it was, you know, not true. And, but... Here, what was interesting to me was that I, I have the opportunity to sit with these men, look them in the eye, and hear what they have to say firsthand, you know, and, mm-hmm. and ask them hard questions. That's why I went back a second time because I was like, no, you know, I didn't get the, the emotion out of these guys that I was looking for. So I'm going to ask them different questions now. The second time around with Preston, you know, I felt like I got it. The first yeah, time around yeah. with Preston, and maybe I'll release those interviews down the road, and I yeah. have three or four hours with him that first time, he, he was like hallucinating. You'll see him on camera. Well, he, he, like, he, he rises up at a certain point, and it's quite scary. You see, it's almost like the, like the truth kind of almost is ready to come out. When that he was rises. a very natural, defensive yeah. reaction. Yeah. You know, and again, I'm not a scientist. I can't tell you that I'm going to go and take a million soil samples. And honestly, I think that would be a fruitless effort to take soil samples at Camp Hero now, you know, 30 years later, topside. I think, I, th- I, think is- you've d- I think you've done the most important thing you can do, which is kind of put the seeds out there because because there's enough there's enough truth to this. You've got three grown men who did they collaborate before you called them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they know they knew each other for years, but they're 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 open about that. I mean, Preston, when he was holding this all started with like these little gatherings in in and around New York City these little kind of gatherings and, and Preston and Duncan would tell their story and Al would come and tell his story. And um, that's how it really began. And mm-hmm. so I think Stewart attended one of these gatherings and Preston drove him home. And that's how they became friends. And I think at that time, according to them, they were Stewart recalled that he was there and Preston recalled that he was there. This was a very, remember, this was four people. That came out with this story originally. Now I, there are hundreds out there that claim they were there. Are there? So, are there? Oh yeah, yeah, sure, for sure. I've been, they, I, yeah, I get wow. emails. From wow, I didn't know James that. Bruce, one of. Them. Well, did um, Al Bielik recognize James Bruce? Well, Al was dead by the Al time was I dead at that point. Him. Okay, yeah. You're okay. thinking of Preston, but I don't think uh, nobody looks the same from. And by the way, James was, in his forties, he looks very different than. By he did the way, by the way, who was who? How many do you have? Uh, how many brothers do you have and cousins? And how many of your poor relatives have <laughs> played parts in the movie? Well, uh, let's see. I think my uh, two of my cousins were in that movie. Three of them. And yeah, yeah. My my father had a small role. Oh, but, you know, was, yeah. What was your father's role? 
Oh, he was the um, he was the the programmer that was holding the light and uh, the the subject's eyes for our main our okay. main Montauk okay. board. Okay, and he was the guy that was about to beat him with a crowbar. You know, it's it's great <laughs> to have family in a film. You know, uh, look, I do that, but also, you know, big Hollywood filmmakers do the same thing. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. put his mother in his movies and his father in his movies for years. Yeah, so but, I'm not, yeah. I, I'm not bashful over that, and you so does Francis. Francis saves the money. I, it, it's not just that; it's that availability, and sometimes you don't need an actor. Sometimes an actor is going to be a pain in the ass if you need them for things. And what you have to understand is when you're making a picture, it's not just the performance. The performance is my camera, my lighting, my editing, the music, all of those things. So sometimes your direction on an actor, and I did go to film school for four years and stuff, learned all this stuff, but still. Where? Where? Uh, school of Visual Arts Manhattan. But okay. sometimes when you're directing an actor, you really, and this goes through any director in the world, sometimes you're telling them, please just look this way. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see it in a movie and we'll say, what an amazing performance. But the direction was very simple. Yeah. So it's a lot of things working in the actor's favor. And sometimes when an actor needs to act in every moment, it's just a hindrance on, on the, well, on the who, who played your main, your main victim? Was that you or was that your brother? Oh, I was behind the camera the whole time. That was my cousin Robert. Oh, uh, good-looking guy. All all of the Garitanos are of a certain kind of a flavor, and so there you just sort of see them. But the poor guy who played the main—it was—it's a very soulful performance, and he never says a word. He just does it with his eyes. He's got beautiful, soulful, sad eyes, and he did a great job. Right. If you learn how to, you know, you can profile these people the right way. You can get away with a lot, and it feel emotion from it but you know you have to know you what you're doing but there were other you know uh, chris uh, margaritas and paul ellers were two decent actors that we had in the film one played jack pruitt the other one played preston nichols and um i think right. they all did a good job everybody yeah. worked hard when they were there you know everybody did what they needed no i mean to do it's and- it i mean i hope that hollywood has uh, i hope people have seen this and have said to you you know let's hire you to do Anything you want to do, um, but you are right now. Let's. Uh, we should switch to that real quick. Uh, it's called GoFundMe, I believe. Right? People uh, can follow the second link on the page right above where the show will be. Uh, GoFundMe, and this is for the Bigfoot. Now, are, is the Bigfoot movie tongue in cheek? No, no, not at all. What it is is something that hasn't been done yet on the subject. And that's, I, w- I get inspired by things that aren't out there. Now, for me to go out there and just go out there with a bunch of people and look in the woods for something we're not going to find again, which that's <laughs> yeah. been done really bad, and that's been done really good. One, night, one With a is, night, but has it been done in night vision? <laughs> right, well, I'm not doing that. I, well, there's too much of that out there, and I refuse to do that. There are incredible books written on the subject that have been written since I was a child. And, you know, I'll be 40 this summer, so I, I have my book collections lasted since I was about four or five years old, and I still have all these books on in my library. And I felt that everything from Patterson's original book to modern books like Jeff Meldrum's book or William Munns' book, When Roger Met Patty, these are all incredible books. And I felt the stories, the lineage that a story is everything from Native American lore to modern science need to be told in an anthology format so for the for the most part 
my Bigfoot movie is these stories as cinema brought to you, uh, linked together by a great narration and great in-betweens, you know, in-between images and setups for the stories. But these right. are just a cinematic journey through the history of the North American Sasquatch. And that's what I wanted to do because it doesn't exist. Mm, no one's true. done it. Yeah. Well, where are you and filming? I, well, I filmed so far in um, northern Michigan uh, in a place called Foley Swamp. And that's one of the nation's hotspots, believe it or not. And I, I have been shooting documentary footage. I also shot in Utah, in Ogden, Utah, in the mountains surrounding that area as well. And um, we found another great location uh, for interior forest locations for our uh, Bauman-Roosevelt adaptation, um, for also for um, our Ape Canyon adaptation, certain things that are deep in the woods. Other things are going to be shot on location in Mount St. Helens. So, you know, obviously areas that haven't been affected sure. by the volcano. That well, well, the Northern Michigan, no, no, the Northern Michigan thing is fascinating because um, year, uh, about five years ago, five years ago, six years ago. Are you going to bring up the land thing? I'm going to bring up that. Yeah. Okay. Let's first find out, Chris, do you know Land Land Fear? Ever heard of him? Land Land no. Fear? Okay. No. Because in case you knew him, he's got the, he, he will have the information, but Bill, Bill can tell you the story. It, yeah, it's a fabulous. We, I got this phone call, uh, again, this is six years ago, from uh, a person from northern Michigan. That, that's what you triggered, <clears throat> who said that um, he's got a Bigfoot living, Bigfoot living in his backyard. And you dismiss a story like that. But remember, he didn't call about that at all. He called because I, of his subscription, and he got to talking to Bill. Right. He was calling about his magazine. Was it like talking about the, the, about the uh, subscription? Then all of a sudden, it was like, and by the way, I yeah, so happen well, to have sort of, a well, Bill, living Bill, in my backyard. We would those. get, you know, people would be chatty because right. people love the magazine, and, and they will call it personally if the magazine didn't show up. And this was one of those cases. But in other words, rabbit fans. Yes. The way he, the way he got it, went into a story, really makes you think it was the truth because not in a million years did he call up about it. Right. He, I, yeah, yeah. He called up about something else, and so. Um, what he said was that there was a family of them living in his backyard. And I said, but where do you live? And he said, well, I'm up really in northern Michigan, near the peninsula, right, the upper peninsula, on, the peninsula yeah. on the peninsula. And he said that his backyard, the back of his house, backs into a very heavily wooded forest. And I said, oh, okay. And he said that the way he described them, he said they were more like, like cavemen. Like it wasn't like they were animals. He said they were like, they were clearly people. They were not like wolf men or anything. They were clearly people and they would sit there and they would come at night. And he said, I began leaving. And he said, they were kids. And he said, I began leaving food out for them <clears throat> and they ate it. And then he said, one night I followed them as they left into the woods and he said the scary thing was the father he assumed it was the father he was the biggest one he's turned and it's like he bared these teeth at me in such a way that i i would not go in and i said well did you after they left did you try and follow them he said that's the odd part about it he said i went into that area after they were gone and they were gone. He said there was nobody there. Right. And so 
he said, but I would keep putting food out and they would keep. And he said, then he said, I took photographs of them. And so theoretically, there were photographs. <clears throat> and then this radio guy, Lan Lam Fear, actually sent a photographer out there to this guy's house to stay there and try and get some photographs of this. And I lost contact with the guy. I didn't pursue it. This became a, a Lan Lam Fear show. But <clears throat> well, they was did the a gentleman's sh- name Jamie? Was that his name by any chance? Jamie. I- I called him Mr. Mike. Did you? Mr. Mike, yeah. okay. But, yeah, but, because I've had several emails that are very similar to this story, uh, you know, uh, from the Upper Peninsula in Michigan and other places in the States and in Canada. And some of them are wild men stories like what you're describing. Others are very uh, tantamount to everything we've heard of what a Sasquatch looks like over the years, you know, nine feet tall, maybe sometimes taller uh, covered in hair, ape-like features, but a wild man-like behavior, not like an animal. Not, yeah, you know, this, yeah, that's the point. This thing wasn't like this thing wasn't like, or this family. They they were like gorillas or anything. They were like they were tall. This guy was very big. He said the guy who turned on him, and they actually were. He said you look at them, and it's clearly a family. And so that really, but the, the, the well, that's how I think they've remained elusive because right. they're not like a breeding population of deer. You know, it's, it's right. different. It's like a, a, a clan of mountain men and women who don't want to be found. That's how what it struck me. But I mean, like, you know, they inbreed like cats or something, basically. So they just well, kind of no, stick within themselves. Maybe, sort but of here's the thing that really, that the one part of the story that, that really hung was the disappearance and and I, I've heard a lot of obviously I've heard a lot of UFO stories and I've seen a lot of stuff. And the it sounded so much like a story I heard about this area in the uh, Ozarks. Um, uh, the name fake name is Marley Woods, and there the 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 residents describe things coming out of seemingly nothing at them. But it's like there's a tube of nothing. Right. In other words, if somebody's standing on one side of the person seeing it, the person doesn't see it. And so when this guy said they simply like the forest swallowed them up and when he went after them to look for them, they weren't there. And I'm just wondering, it, it just sounds dimensional to me. It sounds like there's as weird as that is that there are places where you we are crossing with another reality and there's traffic going back and forth well at least coming into us and i just wonder about that i mean i definitely i you know i'm trying to regard every possible every possibility but what i'm focusing on in my picture is you know, here's the lineage, like the dawn of man, something survived the ice ages, and then maybe it was interacting a lot with tribal humans for quite some time, you know, indigenous humans, until modern man started to populate this area, and war ensued, and genocide ensued, and maybe they were seeing this go down, and they said, we're not going to survive this if we stick around, so we need to retreat, and I think that's kind of what happened, and they still don't want anything to do with us. And I think it would be a mistake 
for all the people out there searching, I think if you do really do find anything, don't reveal your location because what's going to happen next is the bad guys are going to go out there. They don't care. They're going to want to kill as many as possible and bring them down and try and cash in. So I personally don't want to be, I, I have an idea for what an expedition should be like, and it's not anything like what's being conducted anywhere. Um, and most likely something, if it's out there, could be found. But you have to, I think you have to have a small group of people, very well trained, very well versed in tracking, and be out there for a month or two, you know? And well, yeah, yeah. And you've met people who've, in fact, seen them, I'm sure, uh, there are campers and trappers and forestry people who tell oh, stories. Yeah. yeah, I don't doubt for a second that all these good people, have, a lot of them have seen yeah, yeah. them. Yeah, because yeah, I and, think and, every now and then they'll, we'll cross paths with them. And, you well, know, hey, they yeah. could have come from another place, another dimension. But I think a good deal of them might just be very good at hiding in places where humans don't normally go. I mean, you know, who who do you know that's out there for a month looking for these things? I think a good deal of them are these pleasant really, you know, interesting camp outs where, of course, you stick out like a sore thumb if you're with mm -hmm. 10 people and you're banging pots and pans and you have a big campfire. And you smell uh, terrible, probably. Yes. Probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. That's another thing. Well, hunters, I, I don't believe I've ever seen this on any of these Bigfoot hunts is that, you know, there, there's a special soap that you have to wash yourself with, you know, if you want to get your, your right. human scent down. And right. Right. You know, there's a lot of preparation involved. And if I were to to conduct an expedition, and I might after making this Bigfoot movie, but they're two separate things. Uh, I think I would do it that way, and maybe a base camp where some really great people would be just kind of telling ideas and stories, and keep the experts, very few of them, on the trail and in the bush for a very long period of time. Yeah. And if we do find something, the idea is maybe there's a way where we can say, okay, we found something, but we're not going to tell you where it is, because then a whole bunch of new trouble comes into play. Well, it's, it's like know. it's like Morley Woods. Bill has, that's the fake name, but there's a very active spot, sort of like the Skinwalker Ranch. There are places that where, where you know, Skinwalker Ranch, Bigelow bought it because it was supposedly a hot spot, a transition place, a something weird happens kind of place. But I wanted to ask you, how far back are you, are you hearing legends? Um, how far back will your movie show that Bigfoot might be something that Native people talked about? Yes, it's going to begin with Native American legends and move. I think the what we're covering just after that is that Roosevelt Bauman story. Theodore Roosevelt wrote a chapter in his book, The Wilderness Hunter. The chapter's called Cowboy Land. And mm -hmm. there's a good chunk of that chapter. Is, Roosevelt didn't have a first-hand experience seeing one, but he was affected by a man who did. And for Theodore Roosevelt to write this in his memoirs, it must have been a really impressive moment in his life, you know, a very profound moment, because this guy Bauman, who was a frontiersman, uh, you know, Roosevelt was out on the frontier hunting buffalo. Right. And Bauman told him this story, very emotional story, of three nights where they were being stalked by something that was pretty well described as a, a, a Sasquatch, and that they shot at it one night. And so this thing continued to stalk their camp, and Bauman and his buddy were the only ones on this 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 little trapping venture. Uh, decided the final morning that they were going to split up, go clear out their traps because they were scared. And these are guys that shouldn't have been scared of anything, you know, out there. They spent all of their whole lives out there, but uh, they were scared. Whatever this thing was was scaring them. 
So they split up really quick in the daytime. They felt they'd be safe enough because this thing was only coming into their camp at night. So they cleared out their traps. Bauman gets back and his friend is dead. His neck is uh, lacerated. His head is fractured. Mm-hmm. His body's twisted and he's dead. And Bauman just took off, grabbed all his stuff and just ran out of there. And this is the story, you know, in short, this is the story that he told Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was so impressed by this thing that he wrote this in his memoirs. So I'm uh, adapting it as part of a, a nice chapter in my Bigfoot movie because I yeah. feel like it's a significant story. It impressed this guy so much that he wrote this. And this, you know, the, this was a different time and place in the world when, when Roosevelt wrote the story. So he wasn't, I don't think he was really looking for his memoirs to be any more sensational than bringing right, attention right. to him as this frontiersman, you know, this rugged guy. Right, right. So. Well, so so you have done all of. I just I'm curious about this. You've done the you did most of the filming for the movie, the Montauk Chronicles, or all of it. All of it. It's wow. it's all me. Even the shots of me, I set up, I lit, wow. and then I had Eric Swanson would operate the camera as I as I asked him to. He so really you did all the B footage, all the the atmospheric stuff, as well as all the action stuff. Everything you see, I shot. And you also wrote it, right? Yes, I wrote all of the narration that Malaya, who's wonderful, was the narrator and my own narration. Okay, now it says on the in the very beginning, I believe that the special effects are done by you call it East Coast effects. Those are, those are the makeup effects in the alien scene. Every all the visual effects I did myself. Okay, and so, but you also have you must have great people working with you because just it's it's a really good looking movie. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk it up. Every chance I get, because I think everybody, if you haven't, yeah, if you haven't seen it, you have to put it under your belt because it kind of sets the bar and the Bigfoot movie will set the bar. No, no question for Bigfoot stuff forever. So that's fun. Uh, And there were a a great group of people working with me, but it was very small. And most of the time it was me and it would really shock and surprise you as to how this movie was made. It was just a lot of hard work and. Well, I think I think Angel last week or Danny, I can't remember. We were talking about you before the show, and and I think Angel said he, he you could see how, how it's amazing how good a movie can be with very little uh, finances. It's not this was not a super expensive film to make, but it doesn't well, look it. It looks super right, expensive because of the passion behind the project and the fact that our talent it's, take, it's taken seriously and it has a person with a lot of talent behind. No, the forget, forget the passion. Together, no, you have to have the passion first and yeah. foremost for what you're doing. I mean, you have to really be interested in the subject matter. If not, you could half-ass it very easily, and you could tell by watching the film that he really did not half-ass it in any way whatsoever. I mean, every penny was spent well spent. You know, like every, he made everything count and uh, the dramatization um you know the way that everything was weaved and edited together kept you really engaged with what was going on and i mean the narrative the acting everything was really top notch i mean you look at it and you're like this could be in Cannes film festival and so right. major festivals because it's legit i mean this looks like a real documentary like a real well, how, how many films really well yeah this is an, you. and you did it you, this was at the it premiered at the philip k dick film festival which sounds super fun how, and yeah. where how many films were there Oh, in total, like maybe, a lot or just a couple? Yeah, it may have been ten or, Where was this? or more. And this, was in, and this was in New York. Ten features. Yeah, this was New York City. Yeah. Where? Oh man, um, it was you were Midtown. At the produce, I think the Producers Club. It said. Yeah, I, I don't even remember where I was. I think that's I mean, it's called the Producers Club, which yeah, it wasn't oh, so far from. We walked. We walked from Penn Station, so it wasn't that far. It's Eighth Avenue and uh, yeah, 40 right. 40 so Penn is like Penn and Seventh. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's actually it's right behind Port Authority. 
Yeah, so it's right over there. It's not far from Penn Station or Madison Square Garden. Yeah, well, I I, I do hope that um, the horrible Hollywood people are going to come, you know, saying we can make your life very much. I, I, you 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 um you you should attract some interesting attention with this. Well, uh, so far, I you know I shot a pilot for television over the summer for one project, and then this new one again. I I was already approached. I've been approached all year by people on television. Um, you know, in terms of, I, I don't feel this movie has had its day in the sun yet. It's a very independent release. We we almost just had a, a nice big release on DVD and Blu-ray in terms of distribution. But I canceled it because, again, a lot of these guys out there, these companies, are constantly trying to take advantage of independent filmmakers. Well, what do, what do, you, mean, what do you mean by a release? What, what, well, what does that I released, a release consists of, depending on how many stores it's distributed in, how many places. I, I handle all this stuff myself, you know, and because I, I just need to be the protector of my own work. Mm. Uh, you can't, as a movie maker, you can't just be the artist guy, okay? You have to be, protect your stuff or otherwise someone's going to take it from you. Right. Especially if you did something worth watching. They're going to want to make the money and they're going to want to make you feel bad about making money. Not too long ago with a pretty, you know, I guess well-known distributor, which I've had in the past for stuff. And um, really, there's no allure of having a distributor to me Unless it's benefiting me. I worked for nine years, you know, ultimately mm-hmm. to make this movie. And I made two movies. And I'm, you know, why should a distributor who makes a few phone calls uh, mm-hmm. and makes right. you do most of the work and promotion get most of the money? So I, 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 it's not fair. And so right now, my film is available through my website and on Amazon. And it's from me. I'm, I'm working with a few different people hoping that it gets a proper distribution because our last distributor that I was signed with, it would have been everywhere. It would have been in all the stores, Best Buy, it would have been in uh, Family Video, which we have around the corner from over here, you know, it's places like that. So mm-hmm. right. I really want it out there. It would have been out there more. It would have had a bigger advertising push, which I don't have. Again, I'm not an independently <laughs> wealthy guy, so I can't, I can't well, pay for that. Have you approached Netflix or do you have to wait for them to come to you? No, it, Netflix isn't that difficult to get. I have I had a previous film that I made in Netflix. The only th- it's here's the thing though. If you get your movie in Netflix, the majority of people that are going to see it are not going to purchase it. And I I can't and just like I think all independent filmmakers or filmmakers in general, we can't make our movies for free. It's just too much of an expensive paint box. Right. And you know, I think the world of piracy needs to end and people, you know, Netflix is like you pay your $7 a month and there my film is free for 20,000 people or more, a hundred thousand, a million people. And you'll never, you'll never pay you for every download or for review or how do you get paid? Okay. It depends on who you are. If my film Mm. does extraordinarily well for a while, maybe, but the deal on my last picture that was on Netflix, um, you know, I didn't see anything from it. I got an advance from the distributor. So, you know, it, you have to be very careful. So I would rather uh, it be available on DVD and Blu-ray and a nice download or rental from a place that's worth doing it with. And so far, you know, like I said, I just had this brush with one distribution company that I literally canceled because they were in breach of contract. They were trying to take advantage at the very last minute. Mm-hmm. And we were uh, two weeks away from it being in all the stores and everywhere. And I canceled it, which was really hard for me, yeah. you know, but it's it's... I'm not just going to let it go. I'm not just going to let someone take my hard work away from me. I want to work with someone who gives a fair shake. And they are, they are out there. So I think I'm close to closing another deal with it. And then Montauk Chronicles will have its day in the sun. It'll have its proper release. 
Yeah. It, it doesn't feel to me as though it's really um, um, impacted yet because, and I, and I, I kick myself. I, I just, I stayed away from it because I don't know why. I was a little bit because Al Bielik would call us every day. Well, <laughs> that might be it, but you know, but the way it's packaged, and and you were telling me right before the show, the Whispering Alien, um, that's it's brilliantly packaged. Uh, Whispering Alien is very eye-catching. That was a concept that came up with that was illustrated and rendered by the great Trevor Cook. He's a great artist that I've collaborated with. It's just recently on Bigfoot, I decided to do the illustrations myself. So if you see that, any of the illustrations I've put out, including the poster, I did that illustration. But Trevor's great. I, we actually, yeah. I, I wrote a screenplay uh, called South Texas Blues. It's about uh, what went on the set of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1973. And that's and what, I, wait, wait, that's what it was. You were, t- were you talking about this on Skywatchers? I believe I was, yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. Affirmative. Okay, talk about talk about that a little. Bill's got to hear this because this is something that shouldn't have been abandoned. It sounds to me, it it hasn't been. It's just so hard finding people who you know. I think I'm going to come into a position soon where more people will be recognizing what I've done and more interested in in working with me and financing my my screenplays or pictures. But in the past, and it's been I don't know 16 years of me pushing South Texas Blues out there to try to get it made. Um, Trevor Cook and I adapted my screenplay into a graphic novel form, and that was actually published in Fangoria magazine for a year as a as a strip. And but we're ready to go to print with this graphic novel, and really, what it's about it's my original take on a lot of hard research on what happened uh, with Toby Hooper and the rest of the crew while they made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1973, the summer. It was an excruciating summer. Uh, they were shooting in just barbaric conditions, and there's some incredible stories that came out of that. And it's really just a, a, a great story about a man who believed in what he was making. I could relate to this. You know, Nobody knew who he was, really. You know, He won some local awards and stuff, it, but everybody was independent. And most people that worked on this movie didn't even believe it was going to go anywhere. But Toby, the director, Toby Hooper, did, and he stuck with it. And my story ends not in this big glorious film festival release or them it becoming a phenomena like it did. It's an incredible film and, it, and, it, and it, it's known all over the world for over 40 years. But it ends with him cutting the film on a steam back, you know, the, what we used to edit on, splicing yeah, film, right. in his kitchen. Oh, wow. With his back to the camera. And, you know, the last line in the film is I'm, you know, moving into the future with hope. It's like that, you know, he was so focused, you know, and no one else cared by that time. They never thought it was going to see the light of day, but he did. And And, so I wanted to tell that story. Uh, who who named the film? Do you know? Oh, oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm, no, yeah. I didn't name. Well, no, no, the, no. My, who South uh, Texas Blue? No, no, no. Who? I wonder who named the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Who invented the title? Because the title almost makes it irresistible. That was actually um, one of their producers. It, mm-hmm. told, the original title was there were several. I call it Saturn in retrograde in the film. It's not. You never hear that title, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay. Maybe the very end where Toby's narration comes in. But um, there were several titles, and I, and I believe it was one of the producers that coined that title. It wasn't yeah. even Toby Hooper. They thought it would be a, a good title because Toby, Toby heard the guy say it, and he decided that was going to be – that was yeah. the title. Well, how far along are you on this particular one, would you say? With South Texas Blues? Mm-hmm. 
Sal Texas no. Blues, the screenplay is finished. And the, uh, and the, and the graphic novel is? The graphic novel is ready to go to print. Okay. We'd like to put it out as a physical you know, print. And I'd like to make the movie. I mean, I'm ready to make, you know, I have several screenplays that I wrote and I'm ready to make those into a picture as a filmmaker and as a person, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do it. So hopefully, you know, between yeah, this TV yeah. show that's coming and more exposure from Montauk and Bigfoot, we'll, uh, we'll get somebody uh, yep. who wants to see these things happen like I do. Did you run a budget for your screenplay for this? We did. At the time, I did a script, you know, a good professional screenplay budget and breakdown. But remember, you have to understand what you see in Montauk Chronicles was made mostly by one man in a room than your bedroom uh, with enough equipment to fit in the corner of it. And probably the amount of money, and again, this was all my hard work and time and the other people that collaborated on the days they did, but this was an, development money for a TV show, probably a fraction of what they'd be given to just go to a location and scout it was my budget. Wow. So wow. what I'm saying is my budget breakdown of South Texas Blues is much less than someone else's, but I could also budget it for $2 million if that's what someone needs to spend on it, mm -hmm. you know? I can just accomplish things for much cheaper because that's how I've been forced to do it my whole life. And of oh, course, it would depends on talent too. I mean, what you're going to attach above the who you're going to attach above the line. I just want good actors. I don't, I, you know, it depends on who I'm collaborating with. If somebody that wants to finance South Texas Blues needs a star, fine. I would rather make a star though with the film. To tell you the truth, I I know you don't believe, just like I don't believe, that the ten people that they thrust in front of you every couple of years are the only talented people on earth that can right. act. Right. I believe that for a second. Right. So there are hundreds of thousands of people out there that can pull off an incredible performance. And if they do in your picture, if you have the goods and they have the goods, at the end of that movie, they're going to be a star. Right. If, 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 the, if, if you have a good director, um, yeah. we just watched, because it's Memorial Day weekend, we just watched uh, the movie called The Best Years of Our Lives with William, William Wyler was the director, right? Yeah. And it was basically the first, it's an important movie about PTSD, about guys coming home. And, and the, the, the most moving actor in the whole movie is a guy who was hired just because he had lost his hands and he had hooks and he wasn't a professional actor. But the direction is superb. And he just, you know, I'm sure they gave him an idea of what to talk about in the scene and basically just let him go. And, and he, again, it, it, yeah. movie making is many things working in unison. So you have to know, for you to be a good movie maker, you have to know screenwriting, you have to know editing, you have to know the camera, you have to know lenses, you have to know lighting, and you have to know acting and directing. Right, you, know, you, have, to, you, know, you have to love people in yeah. some weird way when you're behind the camera because your filming of Al Bielik, I have to say, is the best filming I've ever seen of a really old kind of a broken down person. You didn't film it from the angle where he'd look bad. You filmed it from the angle where he looked interesting, uh, as good as he's going to look for that scene. And I, I thought it was a very respectful filming of an right. older face that you just never... And by the way, a movie that you might want to check out Nobody else will appreciate it, but you might like it. It's called The Comfort of Strangers, and it's a Canadian film. And it's done, it's an experimental kind of thing in which a woman, um, it's all older women, so none of them are actresses. And the director, possibly a woman, I can't remember, kind of gave them an idea and just set them off. And it's so moving. Old people 
being oh, it's fascinating. Uh, oh, I, I love all, most cinema that's interesting. I mean, I you know John Cassavetes is one of my heroes. Yeah. Um, I love everything from Cassavetes to Romero to Polanski. Uh, you know, I mean, I it, it, they're all my favorite. Yeah, well, this, John they, yeah, 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 so. You have the vaguest idea about. By the way, quick question, Casavetes. But um, quick question, Chris, have you seen uh, the miniseries Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three yet? I did, and you know, I thought it opened really well, Angel. I thought, you know, because I read the book when it first came out. I thought it was an interesting book. I liked the journey that the book gave, and I thought it opened up really well. I don't know why, but I think when it got to one of the, I think the, the attempted murder on his his love interest. By the by, the husband. I think for me, it just in a, as a movie, it started to fall apart a little bit. But then it got good at the end again. So, yeah, the performance by the uh, guy who played Oswald was phenomenal. Yeah, he was Love great. Him. He was the yeah. best thing about it. I, yeah, I even think agreed. he may have been better than Gary Oldman and uh, JFK, if I'm so bold to say it. Whoa, that's tough. <laughs> well, the guy, but the guy who played the Traveler was uh, James Franco. Franco, right? Franco, Franco. yeah, James Franco. Yeah, oh, he did a yeah. good job too. Oh, he was I, great. Yeah, he was. Great. I thought it was well done. Yeah, we we stopped. Okay, now I have I have a joke to close the show. Sure. Oh, yeah. here we go. That's a joke. Uh, also, our guest next week is because uh, I I believe we're out of time. Um, I knew this was going to happen, and so everything is kind of just jamming in at the end. Um, our guest next week is Scott Smith. Okay, it's going to okay, be okay. Scott Smith, pretty interesting. Yep. Yeah, he's been on before. You can check his show before. Um, okay, here here. What what's a comedian's least favorite drink? Uh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> no idea. Booze. <laughs> Booze. Good one. <laughs> boom, boom. Yeah. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, right. this is a great movie. So, Chris, thanks for joining us. They can go to GoFundMe. GoFundMe.com slash Bigfoot the Movie if you want to learn about my new project. And if you feel like joining us, there are plenty of uh, rewards for contributors. Or MontaukChronicles.com or Amazon.com for Montauk Chronicles. Be with us next week, folks, for Scott Smith and for the banks of... Who's from the banks of criminal street? We are your co-host, Bill. That's me and Nancy. Good night, everybody. Burns on Future Theater on PSN Radio and the Dark Social Network. Good night, everybody. Good night, Chris. Good night, Andrew. Good night, Chris. Too. And we'll see everybody next week in the official start of summer. <laughs>